Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is all about food. We have an interview with Crystal King, author of Feast of Sorrow, a novel set in ancient Rome, that takes as its inspiration the first known cookbook. Uh, one note about the show, we had a few technical issues with recording, so there are, you know, little blips in audio quality, but nothing I think that is too onerous. Uh, enjoy! Hello, Crystal. So, you're the author of Feast of Sorrow, which is about, well, why don't you sum it up? How would you, uh, how would you describe your novel? So Feast of Sorrow is essentially a story about the man with his name on the, who he has his name on the oldest known cookbook. He was an actual um, person who lived during the first century AD during the time of Augustus and Tiberius Caesars. And he um, wanted to be gastronomic advisor to Caesar. And he traveled the world looking for luxurious ingredients. And he spent his money um, on lavish parties and looking for uh, the best way to entertain um, the, the Roman people. And he died in a really crazy way. And that's the reason I wrote the book is I thought I have to tell the story of how he got to that point. All right. Now, uh, Apicius... I mean, that's Apicius or Apicius. How do you pronounce it? It's Apicius. The, the old Latin would be Apicius with a hard C. Somewhere in medieval times, it switched to be Apicius. So you will hear that pronunciation from time to time. But the, the correct um, Latin um, pronunciation is with the hard C. Okay. I mean, he's the guy who has his name on the book, but he's not the narrator of the story. Uh, correct. Can you tell us about the narrator? Yeah. So I... I knew that with the ending of the book and how he and how Apicius died, uh, that I, I couldn't tell it from his point of view because then it would ruin. You would know, you would know what he was planning and thinking and how what 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 happened. So I needed somebody else to tell the story. And what I found is that it actually um, was good because it allowed me to give a lot more insight into the character that that that, that in the book of Apicius. And so Thracius is a Greek slave who is purchased at the very first page of the book um, for an extraordinary amount of money because he was well known for his cooking, um, even at a very young age, um, in the household of a different um, master. And Apicius hires him to help, basically, to help make him famous. And that's essentially what Thracius does over the course of the book. That role that the narrator plays, Thracius, uh, basically being a private chef for this uh, nobleman. I don't know if you could really call uh, somebody in the Roman Empire a nobleman yet. But um, was that an actual role that slaves would have played in the Roman Empire? So there were a very, there were many, many different kinds of slaves, actually, in, in the Roman Empire. And slavery is very different than what we think of in America because we're more, we, we tend to understand more about how black slavery in America, um, was during the time. Um, but in ancient Rome, they, slaves came from all over, all over the world. And they were usually, um, from countries that had been conquered and they would bring those people back into Rome. And Rome, um, the Roman slaves could work in the fields. They could work in the, in the salt mines or in other types of mines. Um, but they were also household slaves. 
And household slaves tended to lead a, a little bit easier of a life. If you were working in the salt mines at the age of 20, you, your life expectancy was a couple years. Um, but if you were working as a house slave, your life expectancy could easily be 40, 50, 60 years old, depending on your, your treatment while you were there. And um, you could also become um, a freed person at the age of 35. And when you, um, your masters, actually, most of them would um, give you what you would call a peculum. And a peculum is essentially like an allowance that you would earn over the course of your slavery. And your master would keep that for you. And uh, the peculum would be used essentially to help buy your freedom at the age of 35. And not everybody was able to purchase their own um, their own freedom. Your master had to approve it. But once you did get your freedom, um, either because your master had given it to you or you were able to purchase it, you became a full citizen of Rome. Um, so it's a very different kind of way to look at slavery. You're not necessarily a slave for life. And many slaves stayed on with their masters afterward and continued to work for them them. And some of them married their masters and um, became like family. So there, well, it was a different scenario. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess I was surprised as somebody who was more familiar with American slavery that the main character is uh, literate and skilled. And he also seems to be fairly educated. And do you know if that was unusual at all? Or was that kind of like um, an invention for the sake of making a fictional character? Um no, I think that there were definitely slaves that were educated, particularly if they, um, if it would make them more valuable um, in their sale for other reasons, and um, it de it really depended on the the households that they lived in. There were certainly slaves that taught the children of the masters, for example, um, or that became scribes. Um, so it was very possible that you could have an educated slave. Um, and also uh, slaves often um, lived in multiple places or had their education before they became slaves in some cases. Um, it's, I, I would say the majority of the Roman population um, and the, the plebeians, the plebs, that, um, w which we often think about when we think of ancient Rome, they probably did not read or write. But certainly if you were well-born, you were, you were taught how to read and write. So if you were a slave in a household that had books, there was a possibility that you might be able to have had the opportunity to learn to read and write. All right. Uh, I want to talk about Roman cookery. By the way, one thing that I really appreciate about your book is that it is something about the Roman Empire and does not have military history as its focus. Yes, uh, that is. Or it's not a mystery either. Those right. are the two books that are out there, really. Or romance. They're like romance, mystery, or um, military Right. I really appreciated reading something set in that time period, but had kind of a window into uh, maybe more everyday life. Uh, how did you come to that topic? How did you get into ancient Roman cooking? Well, I was writing a different story about a contemporary chef and I needed and he had this magical set of knives that had been passed through the centuries and I needed an origin story for those knives. And so I came across an anecdote about how um, Apicius died in a food um, history book that I was reading on banquets. And I thought, okay, that's my story. I'll start writing that. And I wrote a, a scene and I thought, this is so much more interesting. I'm going to write that story instead. And I had always loved ancient history and was, um, and I was a big fan of, of reading food memoir and food um, history books 
And so as I started to research more about it, it just became this era and time that I fell in love with. And doing the research was just a sheer pleasure. The amount of information that I learned and how um, advanced the society was at the time and that became lost in the dark ages, of course. And I just, I just really was fascinated with the idea that these were people that loved food and loved entertainment in a way that we, we do today in a lot of cases. So I was just in love with that whole idea. And once I got going, I just, I just became obsessed and I became obsessed with this with um, the country of Italy and I started learning the language and I try to go once a year now. And yeah, it's my favorite place in the world. All right. So uh, walk me through a Roman dinner party. Let's say if I were to show up at Apicius's property and uh, I was one of his guests and he wanted to, you know, impress me with his wealth and access to good food and all that, what would that experience look like? So a typical dinner party would be nine, um, nine people at the, at the couch, not the table necessarily. And so you would be invited in, um, with a a couple other people that would be, um, invited as well. Um, you might have some hangers on that you would bring with you, some people that are kind of essentially crashing the party. And these might be friends or clients of yours, um, it might be maybe your son or somebody who wasn't necessarily directly invited, but that you were bringing along. And those were called shadows. Um, and what would happen is you would, you would be seated. The, the invited people would be seated on this, on a three-sided couch called a triclinium. And the trick, and the reason that nine people were invited, it was a, an homage to the muses. And so the idea that nine people or a, a multiple of that of 18, um, that that was the perfect combination for conversation and culture and um, a conviviality, basically. And so you would lay down on the couch on your side. In the center of this three-sided couch, um, there would be a small table of sorts, and it would reach to the edges of the of the couch so that if you're lying on the couch, you could reach um, whatever was on the table. You would not be served wine with your meal. You would actually um, probably receive some sort of refreshment, um, honey water or other type of water, but you would not have had wine during the meal. That's something that's very different. Your meal would have consisted very much like it does today, in fact, um, of three courses. And the, the ancient Romans were the, the ones that started that, that tradition for us of the idea that the, you would have three courses. Um, but they would start essentially with almost kind of an amuse-bouche of sorts where you would always have eggs to start. You would begin your meal with a dish of eggs, maybe hard-boiled eggs, um, a frittata, or some sort of other type of egg dish. And there might be other accompaniments, um, cheeses and and uh, olives and maybe some other types of savory treats that would be served. Um, you would have a, a third course meal that would be, um, and these courses are not necessarily like what we think of as you would have one dish at each course. It might be that many dishes were brought out, but there would be three separate um, settings of these types of, of dishes. And when these dishes were served, um, for example, if there was a meat that was served during the second course, let's say they were bringing out um, a roast pig of some sort. You wouldn't actually cut that 
up yourself. They would have a, what they called a scissor slave that would come and cut your meat for you um, at the table and then put it on a platter. And diners in ancient Rome, oh, the other thing too is you would bring your own napkin to the party. Um, the host would not provide you with a napkin. Yeah, I um, noticed that. You said that uh, yeah. Epicius <laughs> is wealthy because he has his own spoons and napkins that he gives to people. And that's kind of like him showing off. Yes, exactly. Um, the fact that they could provide that and that would and clean that and and take care of that. Usually, you would bring your own utensils and your own um, napkin. And um, the they did not have forks. They would have had a spoon with a long pointed handle, and that pointed handle was used for sparing meats or for um, uh, opening up shellfish. And so your scissor slave would cut up your meat and you would poke at it with the end of your spoon to, to spear it, to, to, to eat it. Um, so it was very different in that regard. Um, this might sound then, like a dumb question, but it was something that occurred to me while I was reading the book. Uh, does the scissor slave use an instrument that resembles modern scissors? Yes, actually. Oh, it was, okay. They were very much, um, yeah, scissors were... Is, is an, are, they're an ancient Roman invention. And they, they don't necessarily, they, they looked a little bit more compact, probably ancient scissors did. And they were, um, they were fitted a little differently, but the, the blades worked almost exactly the same and that you, you exerted pressure and, and it would, it would bring them together. And, um, yes, so they would cut up meat in that, in that way. Um, okay. and they would use a, a form of scissors. They might have used knives as well, but, um, the reason they called it scissors is because they would actually be cutting up the meats into pieces and often scissors were involved. So you got, um, you said they bring the meat out and uh, what happens after that? What's the um, third course of the meal? So they would often have um, sweet treats, but sometimes there were savory dishes that were mixed in. But at the end of the meal, there would always be fruit. And so you would have either some sort of sweet fruits of some kind. Um, you might have cakes. Um, I, I actually talk about honey cake a lot in the meal in the book, but, um, not, not served necessarily with the meal. Um, but it's interesting, but they, they very well might have been, um, but the dishes that they would serve in temples and the idea of their, their thinking when it came to the gods, they believed that the gods had banquets very much like the mortals did. And so they would serve up honey cakes as an offering to the God um, the gods that they, that they worshiped in order to either, um, placate them or, um, appeal to them or thank them for things. And so, um, they would serve, um, cakes actually to their, to, um, their gods as well. And that actually reminds me one of the other really interesting things about the way that Romans dined is that, um, each household had what they called, and um, they had ancestor gods, um, ancestors of the family, and um, that they believed inhabited the household and lived with the family. And so when you dined, you actually would leave your leftovers, your bones, the pieces of food that you didn't want, and you would throw them on the floor, much like we would do in a bar with peanut shells. Mm -hmm. um, they would just let it f go all over the floor and um, the slave that had to clean it all up, and then what they would do is they would burn those food scraps on the um, the household shrines to the gods. Um, but that was that slave is considered an extraordinarily unlucky slave, um, and uh, that they would have bad luck for their life. Huh. But and you would you would have to be. 
they would probably clean it up before you stood up, I would imagine. Otherwise, you'd be walking through a bunch of grody food on the floor. <laughs> so we're talking about uh, really fancy stuff, really high-end stuff. Um, one thing that I was curious about is what would the more you know, everyday plebeian Roman, what would their access to nutrition have looked like? Um, especially in terms of like protein, um, how much of that would they have actually eaten on, on a daily basis? So they, the average Roman really did not have access. They didn't eat meat that often, to be honest. Um, their protein probably would have come from things like olives and olive oil based, um, type foods. Um, they ate a lot of fried foods. Um, the, in ancient Rome, it was a city itself of over a million people, and it was the largest city um, uh, in the entire world. In fact, they didn't have another city that was a million people until the 1800s. Um, and so during that time, you had an incredible amount of people living in a very compact space like you do in big cities. And what they would do is they to, to live, they you wouldn't build houses like we do necessarily. They would build apartment buildings like you see in cities. And so these apartment buildings might be five or six stories high with, uh, you know, 50 to a hundred people living in them, but um, they would be made out of wood, which means that you couldn't cook your dinner because they didn't have stoves like we do. And so you wouldn't want to light a fire on the fifth floor. So what they did is they would actually take their meals at little um, corner taverns or um, what they called papinas or tabernas or osterias. And they would actually um, go down and have um, sometimes there sometimes there would be boiled meats and and fish, but for the most part it was fried foods, it was lentils, it was um, soups of um, sort barley gruel. Um, it was a, it, they were a lot more simple types of foods, and okay. some fruits, limited fruits. Not they didn't have citrus, for example. It would have been more um, grapes and apples and plums, that kind of thing. Okay, so are we talking about frying things in uh, olive oil? Yep. Oh, exactly. Wow. Yeah, and um, fried foods—they were the—they were the first people to love fast food. Fried fast food was very common. Donuts were an ancient Roman dish, essentially. Um, one of the easiest ancient Roman um, recipes that you could make is you take equal parts ricotta or another soft cheese and flour, and you mix those together. You roll them into balls. You fry them in olive oil and dip it in honey and roll it in poppy seeds or sesame seeds. Oh man. And that's like the easiest thing in the world to make. And they, that was a regular treat that they enjoyed. So something that I have to ask you is, have you tried to replicate any ancient Roman recipes yourself? Many of them actually. Okay. Um, yeah. My husband and I make all sorts of things often, actually. Um, the, there's a Parthian chicken recipe that we've modified from, um, food historian Sally Granger that we love and we make it all the time. And then there's, um, we started out actually by test t taking other recipes that people have created because there's many other historians that have, have recreated these recipes. People like Francine Sagan and her cookbook, Philosopher's Kitchen. Mark Grant has a book um, called, I think, Roman Cookery. Um, there's, um, just some really good, you know, books out there that have a lot of recipes. And we started with that. My husband loves to cook. So I, I, I got a good companion in, in this process. And, uh, but it, we soon realized let's do this on our own. Let's take the, the Latin translation. We can't trans, we don't neither speak Latin, but 
let's take this list of ingredients in these extraordinarily rudimentary directions and figure out what we would do with them. And so we've created dishes like um, sweet and sour dill chicken and um, dishes for duck, uh, mustard beets. There's, um, I, I actually spent a, a great deal of time over the last few weeks um, working on an interpretation of Roman honey cake, um, which has been a lot of fun too. What would, if using only the ingredients that would have been available in ancient Rome, how would I make a modern um, honey cake that would appeal to people? So um, it's it's been a lot of fun to to actually try to make these types of recipes. Excellent. Uh, so one of the things I'm curious about are things like measurements, temperature, and time. Um, now, obviously, they didn't have things like the timekeeping devices that we have now. So how are those things talked about uh, in an ancient cookbook? So they weren't, actually. Oh. <laughs> what you might get is um, most of the recipes that are written down from ancient times all the way into probably the Renaissance, um, often what you would have is a list of um, ingredients and maybe a few directions. So mix this together or um, put it over a fire and um, it would be that kind of instruction. Um, sometimes you'll get a little bit more um, detail, but very rarely are you given any kind of measurements or um, cooking times. Um, there may be some instructions in some cases on the kind of vessel that you're supposed to cook it in. Um, but I, in ancient times, that wasn't really true. So it, but these recipes weren't written for somebody like you or me that's going to go home and cook it. They were written for somebody who worked in a kitchen would have known what to do. They just needed to know enough about the ingredients and the, the rudimentary bits of it. And then they would just make it up or do what they needed to do because they already understood what was intended in that recipe. You just reminded me of uh, cooking shows like the Great British Bake Off where they get yes. instructions <laughs> like prepare the pastry and that's all it says. <laughs> yes, it's that very much that same kind of thing. Exactly. All right. Uh, something I also want to ask as somebody who like grew up making pasta in the kitchen with his mom. Um, is there any kind of through line one can make between modern Italian cuisine and ancient Roman cuisine? Or is that too much of a stretch to try to connect it to? Uh, I think you certainly see some dishes that are probably similar or um, uh, that that still, but I would say not even necessarily Italian, but but that actually extended into other cultures. So for example, that honey cake I was talking about, um, the, the ancient, it basically, um, Jews still, um, eat honey cake, um, particularly at Rosh Hashanah. That's something that, it, that they love to eat at that time of year. It's like, it's like fruitcake is to Christians at Christmas time. So, um, so that, so that's something that, that survived. Um, French toast is actually an ancient Roman dish. Um, there's a recipe in the Epicurus cookbook that is almost exactly like the French toast we eat and love today. Um, and we wouldn't have think of that as, as Italian, but there's certainly dishes like tapenade and, um, some of the meats, meat dishes. Um, there's some, some vinegar types of, um, foods cooked in vinegar that, um, probably are reminiscent of, um, 
that, that, that are common in Italian cooking today that are, that are probably reminiscent of some of these ancient dishes. Um, I would say that there's, there's definitely some lines that go up through the Italian cooking of today, but they're, they, they just didn't have the same kinds of ingredients. So for example, lemons weren't available to the third century. Tomatoes weren't eaten until, um, long out until after the Renaissance, um, they, because it was a nightshade vegetable, they believed it was poison. Um, mm. they didn't have a lot of the same things that we, they didn't have pasta, so some of the things that we think of as very common in Italian cooking today just didn't exist back then. Although so, you did see flatbreads that probably did end up being the precursors for cooking. And there were layered dishes that probably were the precursors for lasagna. Yeah, I've looked into the history of pasta and there's some debate about whether certain things, as they're described, actually count as pasta. Right. Or, or whether it's just like very flat bread. Yes, yes. Um, I, I, yeah, that's, that's probably a, a good way to, to, to think about it because there were things that, um, probably could have been considered sort of pasta like, but we would, but they, they don't really resemble the pastas of today, but yeah. So there's a recipe actually for an Apician, um, patina or patina, and, um, it is really a layered dish and there's, um, this thin, um, bread like substance that actually is in between the layers, but it's not what we would consider pasta today. It's more like a very thin cracker pastry that actually would have lended starch to the dish. Okay. So this might be a little goofy or whatever, but I kind of wanted to like, you know, close out with an example that maybe people could do themselves. Is there an apicius recipe that you recommend to people or that you would want to recommend to listeners that they could maybe try out on their own? Yes, there's actually a couple on my website, crystalking.com. The Parthian chicken dish is there. And um, I I believe there should be a couple other recipes there, but I I know the Parthian chicken dish is there. And I I do post recipes from time to time in other places. And um, also on my website, if people want to sign up for my newsletter, I um, send out an ancient Roman recipe every month on my newsletter. And the one that I'm sending out this upcoming month is actually a recreation from Katie Parla, who is a Italian um, food historian and um, travel blogger. And she has a spaghetti with anchovy sauce, um, which is actually the fish sauce, the colatura um, is what they call it today. But it's essentially with the garum, the fish sauce of the ancient past. So it's, and it's very delicious. Excellent. Uh, well, I'm all curious now. I think I'm going to try to make that Parthian chicken. It's so good. It's super easy to make. Um, you can, you, you just mix a bunch of ingredients together, throw it on the chicken and then you, um, let it cook. We make wings out of it. I've made it at parties many times. It's so delicious. All right. Excellent. Is there anything that we didn't get to that you want to speak to? I would say the one thing I didn't mention is at the end of dinner is when you would drink your wine. And so the ancient Romans had, they had, would have a, a, what they called a symposium afterwards where you would have wine and entertainment and your wine was always, um, watered down because they had wine that might be very, very old and sludgy. So you'd have to water it down and spice it up. And that was the other thing people, ancient Romans might've brought their own spice mix to parties because, or to dinner because everybody spiced their wine to make it more palatable and 
of course, the spices that you might like might be different than the mix that I might like. So therefore, people would bring their own spice mixes to parties. So I just think that's so interesting. Okay, so it always ended with spicy, spicy wine or spiced wine. Spiced wine, yes. And um, there would be a magister of revels, essentially, who would decide the course of conversation and how much they could talk about um, certain topics. Um, so, uh, and, and then he would also help make sure that people didn't get too drunk or they got the right amount of drunk. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Well, Crystal King, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'll let you know how that Parthian chicken goes. Okay. Yes. I would love to find out. Okay. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. And once again, Crystal King's book is Feast of Sorrow. Uh, if you enjoy ancient Rome and cooking and ancient Roman cooking, uh, pick it up. I really liked it. Uh, so go to Amazon or Powell's or wherever you find printed matter and uh, get that thing. Uh, also, her website has all sorts of great recipes. I am going to make that Parthian chicken this week, and I will let you know how it turns out. I will be posting about that on Facebook.com slash Weird History Podcast on my Twitter account at Joe Streckert. So if you want to know about my adventures with cooking ancient Roman birds... Follow me on social media. Uh, as always, give us ratings and reviews on iTunes. That would be excellent. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Mm-hmm.